Welcome to this week's episode of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. I am here with Peter Hagen, who is the editor of the book, and then I am Pastor Michael Zarling, the uh, the author of the book. And Pastor Hagen is a pastor too, even though I didn't include that in the title for him. <laughs> we are going to be talking about Chapter 5 of the book that we had gone through the first part discussing biblical examples of resistance. Now we're on page 78. We're going to be looking at historical examples of resistance. Uh, so, Peter, do you have any examples that are not mentioned here before we get into the book? Um, as far as, as resistance, um, there is probably... The, the role of the confessing church um, in the 1930s in Germany, where the, the Nazis, um, knowing that the Germans were a well-churched people, you know, primarily either Lutheran or Catholic, um, they basically orchestrated a, a state takeover of the, the, of the Lutheran church. Um, and to the extent where it required the clergy um, to sign an oath of fealty um, or, or an oath of you know commitment or whatever um, to Chancellor Hitler. And there was only a small number of, um, of pastors and churches that did not join in this because there was a lot of social pressure. Um, and that group became known as the Confessing Church. And, um, and the interesting part is that in that whole history um, that the the Nazi party made extensive use of Romans chapter 13 to say, we are the government, you need to obey the government. And the confessing church said, time out, you, <laughs> they, they objected to all of the um, reforms that the German government was foisting upon the church. And they saw through most or a lot of, um, a lot of what the German government was trying to do. Um, and two notable names that were associated with that um, confessing church movement would be um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, Hermann Sasse. Um, and, and they basically said, you know, that's not the way that the church is supposed to act. The church worships Christ. We don't, um, we're, we're not going to be replacing, replacing things in our church with um, symbolism that aligns more with what the Nazi party wants because we're a Christian church. And... Um, I think that there's, there's a little bit more history there that I didn't get to read up on. Um, I read up on a lot of that when I was doing the editing because I thought I would make it for a fantastic, but it would have been an entire another chapter and a half. And I already added a, a, enough as it was. Um, but the, the main point to remember, I guess, is that the, the faithful confessing Christians in Germany during the 1930s um, were the ones who stood up to the government and said that we are not going to allow your interpretation of scripture to um, overthrow our interpretation of scripture, um, even to the point where Bonhoeffer uh, was involved in a plot to, um, to assassinate Adolf Hitler, which you know, is kind of its own, own question in, in its own right. Um, you know, that would probably, I would probably leave that under the, uh, the category of rebellion, um, perhaps. And, and that there's a whole lot more historical detail there that we'd have to talk about before um, applying that or seeing that as, as uh, straightforward resistance. Um, but all that to say, you know, there was some resistance during uh, 1930s Germany 
that would be um, interesting to to talk about once I get a little bit more detail on that. Yeah, and I haven't studied all that stuff either, but it is interesting that I think we would automatically classify oftentimes uh, Bonhoeffer and the other Christians that were secret and hidden in the government trying to overthrow Hitler, even assassinate Hitler, and to say, well, yeah, it was rebellion. And yet this would be something to look into. You know, I, I don't know if you and I are going to take the time to do it, but maybe our listeners would of uh, some of the things that I remember hearing and reading is, but if these are officials in the government and now they are uh, trying to overthrow their own government, you know, are they then that third, uh, you know, like we talked about in the Magdeburg Confession, that third level? You know, they're they're the sheriffs. They're the ones that are standing up for the people. So it's not regular citizens doing this, like maybe Bonhoeffer was, but there are others that were alongside of him that were officials. And then, you know, would it necessarily be rebellion? I don't have an answer for it, but those are these tricky questions that we should be studying and not just automatically uh, classifying as rebellion or you know, something that's bad or something that's good. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was thinking of this too. I was listening to another podcast because even though there's a lot of really good stuff on the Raised with Jesus podcast, there are other podcasters out there. I think you're really? actually you're actually a rarity <laughs> if you're not podcasting in some way. So I was listening to Issues, Etc., and they were reading from a book called Objections Overruled. And they were talking about some of these things that were going on in the Christian church in secular governments throughout history. And I was listening to it as they were talking and just thinking, oh, these are really examples of resistance. That's not the way objections overrule meant it, just to be fair. This is the way I took it. So they were talking about how, like with Rome, they had these pagan policies, and the Christian just said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to worship the emperor. That a lot of times they would have these pagan governments would allow for abortion and infanticide. And uh, if you didn't want a son or a daughter, you could just let them on the street or out in the woods to die, if, especially if they became injured or lame, uh, if they were diseased. And then they would just not take care of the elderly because that took too much effort and resources. And so the Christians resisted by uh, really calmly saying, we're not going to allow for abortion. We're not going to allow for infanticide. We'll start hospitals. We'll start hospice care homes. We'll, uh, we'll bring these unwanted children into our homes. Uh, with a, They mentioned gladiatorial games, that that was the big ticket item in the culture. And the Christians said, this is not right. And they just didn't go. And they stood out among all of the pagans by not going. And eventually they influenced the emperor enough that the emperor just abolished them. Uh, the Christians throughout history, then they allowed for women's suffrage. You know, before this, it was just only men all the time. And they allowed for women's suffrage. They allowed for the education of women. And the key is that Eventually, 
the governments changed their positions on all of these things because the Christians were doing something different. And that's really the definition of resistance, is saying, no, what you're going to do, we're going to do something different. Yeah, and, and I guess that's the, the biggest question to me, <clears throat> is, is there really a difference between calling it resistance versus calling it your Christian confession? And, um, and parsing that out ever so slightly, I'd just say it's just coming from two different directions. Is the prompting cause, you know, something in society, a law, um, some external edict or decree? Um, and then the Christian is saying, no, um, you know, resistance to that. Um, that would be resistance. Or is the, does the prompting come from the other way, um, coming primarily from, from a you know, study of scripture and the faith that that scripture has formed? Um, and then the Christian looks around and says, wait a second, we need to act and speak and live in such a way that confesses our faith more clearly in society. And that's confession. Um, and then, you know, where those, where those two collide, where your confession collides with some sort of law, then that's where you get, um, you know, greater opportunity for confession and, and maybe a higher degree of, of risk to your resistance. Um, and so with the, the Romans, you know, if you don't want uh, a child, um, you can just leave it out for exposure at the, at the city walls. And everybody was supposed to just leave the babies there, don't, don't take care of them. And the Christians were the ones who went out under cover of night to rescue these children and to raise them in orphanages, to raise them as their own. Um, that it's been part and parcel, for instance, um, in that example, it's been part and parcel of the Christian faith to confess the value of life at all of its stages and at all of its ages. And, um, and even to the point of resisting a law that said, you know, don't rescue these babies or something like that. Um, the Christian confession says we do, and we can't just say we believe this on Sunday and then do nothing about it on Monday. Yeah. And then to put, you know, as you said, you know, confessing and living meeting together, that's where on page 78, I, I give some examples from the Magdeburg confession that uh, the Magdeburg confession, the pastors listed a few examples from secular history. They mention how the Maccabees resisted King Antiochus when he desired to make a sim single common religion of all the nations in his empire. Uh, the Magdeburg Confession used two other examples. Quote, Emperor Constantine took up arms for the defense of Christians against Licinius, his co-emperor, and mm -hmm. Emperor Trajan when he appointed a master of the horse for himself. He handed a sword to him saying, use this sword against my enemies. If I give righteous commands, but if I give unrighteous commands, use it against me. That's pretty interesting. So, Peter, do you want to talk about yeah. the next example, that of the American colonists? Oh, boy, the uh, the American colonists um, and their attempts to resist unjust um, taxation without representation. Um, if you've ever read the Declaration of Independence, uh, we've got some friends who who, you know, we get together with them, you know, fairly often. And, uh, and every 4th of July, we have a group reading of the Declaration of Independence. And it's, it's rather eye-opening, the way that especially Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, structures their argument, uh, their, their logical proposition um, as to why they should be separated. 
and he structures it in a number of ways in which they say, you know, this has happened and this has happened and we have put up with it and we have acquiesced and we have tried to go along with it uh, to this point. But now it has become so intolerable that we have um, that we don't have the ability to carry on everyday life. Um, whether you agree, you know, whether we, you know, 200 some 250 years removed almost from the writing of that declaration, whether we agree with his analysis, um, he's coming at it from the direction of a um, of a deist, I suppose, and John Locke's idea of a of a contract with society that that government is um, is carried out with the consent of the governed, um, and that idea is also you know part and parcel of what we would call the classically liberal viewpoint on society um, that government governs best when it governs least and the other idea of classical liberalism when we're talking about government is that there is a mutual relationship there and that the the ones who are ruled are ruled with the consent with their consent and they consent to the one who is ruling over them um, which isn't exactly the way that scripture puts it, but it does bring in the greater element that when we have been given a vocation, that we've got a real, there's a mutual responsibility there in that vocation. Um, and so I think with the, the American colonists, um, especially when you read through the Declaration of Independence, for instance, um, then you see how they try to go along with this uh, to a point um, and then eventually they say, you know what, we have, we have bent over backwards trying to comply with King George and we, we can't anymore. Yeah, and then with that, again, just like I said with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the others that were trying to resist, maybe even overthrow Hitler and the Nazis, there'd be those who would say that the American Revolution was sinful, okay, because it has the word revolution in it. But I wonder if it would be called the American resistance, if it would be looked on as sinful. And again, because uh, this would be for our listeners to really study this history and to say, you know, again, legally, did they have the right to resist their governing authorities? And if they do, then is that sinful? Mm -hmm. Okay. So those are all really good examples. But again, I hear Lutheran pastors, Lutheran professors, Lutheran uh, theologians, Lutheran members, uh, Christians, just automatically saying, well, it's, it's a revolution, it's sinful. And I don't know if it's quite so cut and dry. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I think, you know, there were Lutherans back then, and or at least strong Christians, they went along with it. So are we so quick to say, hey, their decision in the middle of this was wrong and ungodly and sinful? Or do we give the Christians the benefit of the doubt, according to the Eighth Commandment, and take their words and actions in the kindest possible way? Uh, next example I had is a secular one, so it's not Christian. It's the nonviolence, uh, civil disobedience of the Salt March of 1930. So this was led by Mahatma Gandhi because Britain's Salt Act of 1882 prohibited Indian citizens from collecting or selling sea salt. Well, sea salt is a staple of the Indian diet. And so they were then forced to buy all of their salt from mm -hmm. the Britons. They had, the government had cornered the market on this. Uh, 
And and that realistically, unless you eat, you know, a ton of leafy greens, you're not going to get the minerals that you need in your diet. And so they they need it as an essential. It's not just, you know, like the German people or the Irish people live on potatoes. It's we need this or else we're going to be getting sick um, because we're not getting the minerals that we need. And it was it, it's a very you know strong lever that the, the British government then tries to pull. Yeah. And so what Gandhi does is he leads a peaceful march all the way across India, which is a big country. He marches them to the sea, uh, trying to get the people all on board. Uh, so he's got over 50,000 people. Just imagine that. Because there's 50,000 people that are arrested. So I'm not sure how many more are marching with him. But they arrest 50,000 people that are marching with him in a non-violent act of disobedience. And so this is a milestone. And the Britons, the, the British, they take notice of this. And then this is a milestone that then allows India to be granted its independence from British rule in 1947. But again, nonviolent civil disobedience. It's resistance, and you know some big changes happen because of that. Well, how about again in our American history, Peter? If you want to talk about with Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks, um, and and I guess another good one for um, like similar context and this discussion of civil disobedience and resistance. Um, that in the modern era, um, Mahatma Gandhi was the one who organized this idea of civil disobedience. And he did a lot better job than you know, a number of other Christians um, in articulating what this looks like. Um, but in, when you're talking about the civil rights movement, you know, a good book, um, it's a really quick read, is um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letters from Birmingham Jail. Um, and he articulates, you know, what is it that we do? What is it that we're trying to not do? And, um, and, and I think it's just a fantastic read. If you haven't read it uh, since high school or if you've never read it, um, please do so. You know, we'll put that on the reading list for today. So far we have two, the Declaration and the, uh, the Letters from Birmingham Jail. Well, the Declaration, <laughs> that's on every episode. <laughs> it yeah. is, it is. And uh, as well as a couple other mentions that I haven't gotten to yet today. Um, so Rosa Parks, she wasn't the first one. There was there was a, a somebody previous to her who had resisted giving up her seat to a white man on the bus, um, but they didn't have all of their PR and all the optics in place. They didn't have their their plan for promotion and um, and the news crews in place, um, and so that lady was arrested and then went on her way. Um, and Rosa Parks purposely said, you know what? She looked at this law that said. If the bus is full, then um, any colored person in the front of the bus has to move to the back of the bus and give up his or her seat to to a white man. Um, and looked at that law, and on, on the front of it, on the basis of it, it is not equal protection under the law, number one. It is not blind, uh, number two. Um, but also that it is there's an injustice to it. And so how do you how do you, they go about setting up this boycott that is sparked they, they have the boycott basically lined up and what they want to do that it is sparked by Rosa Parks saying no. Um, not you know walking onto the bus and demanding that some other white man move over no she got on early and then she sat in her seat and. Um, 
and force them to take their law to its logical conclusion that if it is illegal for me to sit here, that if I have to move, then you have to be the ones to make that happen. Enforce your law or give up on your law. And they chose to enforce the law. She was arrested and it, it set off this um, PR boondoggle that thankfully the civil rights people were ready for, that they had planned for, that they had planned on this. And, um, and then they organized the Montgomery bus boycott. And eventually, you know, Montgomery gives in and says, oh wait, all these people are walking rather than riding our buses and we are insolvent unless we get their, their butts back, on, back into these seats unless we fill the seats of our bus, I'll put it like that. Um, and, and then that's when they finally changed their law, their policy and said, okay, I, I guess you're right. Um, it was just one, another chink in the chain of, um, of overturning these, these laws that were unjust on the basis of a person's skin color. Right. Yeah. And that Montgomery bus act is, is important too, not just to think about Rosa Parks, but what it led to, like you said, is, uh, the black Americans are uh, boycotting, riding on the bus. So they're not getting that income. They're just walking. And, you know, they have to change their policy. It's the same way with the the black Americans that would say, you know, you got the drinking fountain for the whites and then drinking fountains for the blacks. And the blacks, say, I'm, I'm going to use this one. When it would be eating in diners and so forth, all of that segregation that is legal. That's the key too. These were legal laws. Just because something is legal and voted on and approved doesn't mean that it's moral and right. Mm -hmm. And so they pushed back and to see where we are today, all those years later, because things happen because people were brave enough to resist. Uh, my favorite example, and I even say it in the book on page 80, one of my favorite examples of civil disobedience is happened on Rosenstrasse or Rose Street. So this goes back to what you were mentioning before, Peter, of Nazi Germany, that this is later on in the war, that the Nazis have arrested all of the Jews, except for those Jews, Jewish men who are married to German Fraus, German women. And they arrest these guys and then they take them to Rosenstrasse, Rose Street. And the German women, they protest. They get together and they're outside of this prison, just quietly protesting with the Nazis, the, the Gestapo, training their guns on them from on top of the building and in the streets and so forth. And the women are just there. And what's interesting is that the German propagandist, uh, Joseph Goebbels, he ordered the release of the prisoners. And there is two reasons for it, at least. One is he was afraid that this was going to get out and be a public uh, policy nightmare when other people around the world heard about what was going on with the Jews in Germany. But more importantly, he was afraid of what would happen with the other Germans, the German citizens, if they heard what was going on with these women. And they saw that these women were protesting and they were standing up to the government. And then they won. 
mm-hmm. and with nothing, nothing happening. They, you know, I don't imagine from what I read, they were shouting. They're not throwing, they're not doing picket signs, all those kind of things. It's a peaceful protest. And uh, they, they change history. And on top of page 81, I write, this begs the question, what would have happened if German people had spoken up and stood up sooner when they saw their Jewish neighbors being rounded up and deported? What would have happened if the garrison church of Potsdam and other Lutheran churches in Germany had resisted the Nazi zeitgeist? That's a sentence you wrote. I didn't write that. <laughs> <laughs> how I many people about that now. <laughs> yeah how many millions would have survived if the baptized germans had collectively peacefully resisted the ungodly tyranny of chancellor hitler after all quote baptized germans made up 95 percent of the german population yeah and it's like um we we all you know after the fact want to wring our hands and say never again um and and after the world war ii there were numerous experiments, including, you know, the famous um, Stanford prison experiment, trying to figure out what was it that made these these German soldiers so nefarious and so willing to do evil things. And what they came up with was they were just normal people who didn't have a, didn't stand up for what was right. Um, and they they just bowed their heads and said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to do what I'm told. And um, and then, you know, defend themselves after the fact I was just following orders and therefore I am off the hook because I'm never going to be responsible or accountable for anything. Um, and. And how much of a tendency is there? This is, you know, an, an unanswerable question, I suppose. But how much of a tendency is there for Christians who we have the freedom to worship together, to gather together, and we've got the freedom of the gospel where we know that we can't add or subtract anything from the righteousness that Jesus has won for us. Um, how many Christians are willing to sit back and say, it's not my circus, not my monkeys, not my responsibility. I'm just going to do my own little Christian thing over here and you go do you over there. And, uh, and we'll just pretend that we don't see each other and we'll live in our insular Christian communities um, with, with no other concern for our neighbor. Um, yeah. And with that, let me just interject. Please. Is when people always say, and this goes back to chapter one, the impetus for the book, Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, fourth commandment, obey your authorities. And just they just use that because it's easy. Mm-hmm. But I challenge that that's apathetic when you just don't want to do the hard work and applying these things. When we're looking at, Nazi Germany, uh, American civil rights history, uh, American revolution history, any of these types of things of saying these are difficult decisions that we can't just give the eighth grade catechism answer of we need to obey the government unless it tells us to sin. That's not scriptural. I know, you know, that that can get people riled up, but it's not. Yeah, it, there's scripture has a whole lot more to say on the topic, and um, and it's kind of like um, you talk to somebody in your Bible class, and uh, or you know Sunday morning Bible class, whatever it happens to be, and they'll get all all riled up about you know the current politics or um, you know or gender issues or uh, voting issues or you know pro life versus pro choice. 
um, and say, Pastor, we should do something about this. Um, and it's like, okay, you're not gonna you're not gonna stop the advance of AI, and you're not going to um, you know change the curriculum in your local public school. Well, what can you do is you can talk to your grown child and tell them to, to come with you to church. That we want to, we, we love the idea of standing up for the truth when it is something, something extreme. Like, I'm going to march with Gandhi. I'm going to stand with these women on the Rose Street. I'm going to walk, my walk myself to church or walk myself to work so I'm not taking the bus. Um, but when it's the simple things that Christians are called to do in our vocation, that you, you know talk to your own family members and invite them, them to church um, to speak from the heart about what it means to have a savior who rose from the dead um, that confession and resistance describes the christian life and and we like to think it's something so um so extreme that i'll be ready when the day comes well the day has been here for the last 30 years um, where are we confessing the faith? And even when that means resistance to those who are um, encouraging or compelling something that is ungodly. Yeah, and, and to that, this week I had an, a brother pastor message me, ask me if I had any suggestions for a men's retreat, that he wants to lead one. He's, uh, he's in a foreign mission on an island he wants to do this men's retreat three times a year once a month they're going to be on the beach oh my goodness that saying sounds idyllic he was asking me for suggestions and i said honestly because you know i'm worked up with the book and everything I said maybe it's just teaching these men as husbands and fathers or even single men to be able to stand up to the woke theology of our culture. And I said, I've got two chapters on the book that are unpublished just to make the book shorter and more affordable and so forth. But I said, those are things that we should be doing, like you said, Peter, naturally, just standing up, protecting our children and our spouses from these things. Uh, the other example I have is from our own Wisconsin Senate history. And what was interesting of how God worked this example here is, I remember one night, uh, I'm, I was just really upset because of something having to do with resistance. Maybe someone called me out on something, and so I'm not sleeping, and so I'm on my phone. I'm just, you know, scrolling for different things. I'm not even sure what, and then God allowed me to find this paper. And I don't even know how I found it. And it's uh, a paper called The War to End All Germans, Wisconsin and Lutherans in the First World War. And and that's where I found that example of the uh, Rosenstrasse. But I also found this example of the Bennett Law. So the Bennett Law was something that pa was passed in Wisconsin in 1889. And the Bennett Law was something that was passed, this is pretty interesting, by the Republican legislature. And they were saying that there were three things, that uh, schools could no longer teach in German, that they had to follow the secular holiday schedule, and you could not bus past the school division lines. Well, our Lutheran churches 
this was a big deal for us, for our Lutheran parochial schools. We, along with the Catholics, had all the schools, the parochial schools in Wisconsin. And uh, we realized as a church body, this is this could be the death knell of our schools because we're teaching in German. Our students are coming from across district lines to be able to come to our parochial schools. And we want our students to be uh, following Christian holidays, not secular holidays. And what was interesting then is that it was pastors that were getting up in the church and talking down against this law. It was professors at Dr. Martin Luther College in New Ulm, Minnesota, at the seminary in Mequon. It was our own Lutheran magazine. You know, now we have Ford and Christ. Before that, it was the Northwestern Lutheran. Before that, it was the Gemeindeblatt that was in German. And all of these, in these publication, the Gemeindeblatt, it is calling out Christians, our Lutherans, to vote out the, the Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. <laughs> that uh, ni- was it ninety three percent in those areas where uh, it was Democrats uh, took over. I'm just trying to find the page here, but yeah, it's like ninety three percent in those areas. Ninety six point eight voted Democrat in mm-hmm. highly Lutheran would be Wisconsin, Missouri synod areas. Uh, so there is a thing, again, that's something I think would be forbidden, you know, verboten in our culture, a present Wisconsin Lutheran culture, saying pastors, professors, they can't be talking about this uh, in official publications or in the congregation or in our in our colleges or seminary. And yet they did it. So were they wrong? Or... <laughs> Are we going to give them the benefit of the doubt of the Eighth Commandment, putting the best construction and everything? And if they were right a century ago, does that mean that we would be right in doing it now? And, ahead, and to not evade the question by saying, well, they were requiring um, teaching in English, and therefore you know, they were basically forbidding the proclamation of the gospel in German to people who spoke German. That's, that's evading the question. Um, the actual question here, is it, is it proper for, for Lutherans to basically use the First Amendment um, in, as a church and as members of a church body to say that you should vote for candidate A because candidate A's policies will are are helpful and will allow us to continue our ministry. Whereas candidate B, if his or her policies are voted in and that person wins, then that will mean um, that will mean the, the death of our schools. And I, I talked about this in, um, in my sermon a couple of weeks back on Romans 13, um, where the idea of you don't mention, don't mention names only dates back to the Linda, when Lyndon B. Johnson was in the Senate. Um, which is, you know, within the memory of, of everybody alive today. And we don't really have any memory of time before that. But that was where this fallacy, this uh, false idea that Christians should not speak about this, that we cannot name names, that we cannot say, you know, let's vote no on issue one because we are um, against the idea of killing babies, um, for instance, here in Ohio. 
um, that <clears throat> idea that Christians don't speak specifically about these things because that's politics. Um, and all that does is continue to eviscerate the Christian confession. Um, you know, I got, got a little bit of pushback on this one, I think, um, where I said, you know, basically, I, you know, personally, I, I thank God that I am in a congregation working with people in a community where I have to go back and think through and relearn what should we do in order to bring our actions in line with our beliefs um where i've got this i don't have the, the the brain space to be able to think about all these things in a vacuum i'm glad to have a concrete place and people in a community to serve um but that that's kind of the application of the gospel that this confession needs to be made in a community or it needs to be made for a particular group of people whether that's a group of people in, in a college setting, that's going to be a different confession than talking to a congregation that is, you know, in a college town versus a congregation that is, you know, just like here in Toledo. Um, they're all are talking about different, different people that you're talking to, but thinking through that confession um, of what that should look like is, is really the task of the Christian. And it's certainly within the realm of the Christian, as well as the um, authority given by the IRS, that we can say um, that we should or should not vote in favor of this particular policy. And I would, I would say that, um, at least in the IRS before Lois Lerner, <laughs> before those days, um, that they would not have a, a real problem with you saying, don't vote for... Um, for Representative Smith, vote for Representative Anderson, um, because because there has never been a church that has lost its tax tax exempt status on the basis of their confession, on the basis of what they said about a particular candidate. Yeah, and to that, because I know you brought that example up a few times, so I was thinking about it. Is <clears throat> two things that come to mind of just because there's a law now and like you said it's a recent law saying you shouldn't be talking about uh politicians by name does that mean it's necessarily a good law and then that we should follow it or should we be resisting it and then like you said about uh, our tax exempt status if we do do it then we can lose our tax exempt status well if we as churches are so concerned about this uh tax exempt status is that then not allowing the left-hand kingdom of the government to have authority over the right-hand kingdom of of the church it's the same thing we talked about before with uh the government uh using covid restrictions and then telling people telling churches they needed to close down or limit their amount of people or telling them you had to wear masks, you couldn't sing, all of those kinds of things. The tax exempt status and the threat to lose it, that's really no different. Mm -hmm. And and I guess um, this would be the interesting one, at least from the Supreme Court side of things, that the Hobby Lobby case against Obamacare ruled that a closely held corporation is has protected free speech. In which case, you know, Hobby Lobby is owned by a family, but it is it is closely held. It is not, you know, publicly traded in the way that IBM is. Um, so, if a closely held organization such as corporation such as Hobby Lobby 
has the authority to exercise First Amendment rights in the execution of their business, then that, that at least to my uneducated mind says that Christian churches have standing to say that they are their they have protection already in the First Amendment, but that we have closely held um, membership within our churches in order to um, continue to exercise these same First Amendment rights that are that are afforded to for-profit closely held corporations. So, in other words, if um, if the corporation can do it, <laughs> and they're they're doing it for profit, and they're owned by a family. And that family is exercising First Amendment rights, then surely a church who already has First Amendment rights in the in the Constitution can exercise those First Amendment rights as part of their mission and confession. There you go. Oh. Yeah. Well, and then talking about calling out politicians. So same time that we are recording these podcasts and YouTube videos, I'm also going through the book in our congregation and Friday morning Bible studies. And we had just finished last week the Magdeburg Confession. And one of our members asked me, do you think President Biden falls under uh, number level two of a lawless tyrant? And I said, you know, I've been in the ministry a long time. I'm smart enough to realize I guess I was saying this to myself. I'm smart enough to realize I'm not answering that one. <laughs> so what I what I said to her and the rest of the class was, what do you think? That's the smart one. What do you think? And she said, well, everything he does. And then she goes, well, I can't say everything. But almost everything he does is wrong. And it turns out bad. So it seems like he's a lawless tyrant. Because number, the first one is they're just making mistakes. Uh, that's the first level. The second level is, do you think that uh, the politicians, the governing authorities are doing this on purpose to hurt people? And then I asked, I did ask the question, when you're at, talking about things like lawlessness in our major cities, when you're seeing people streaming into our nation as illegal immigrants, and, and I gave a couple of other examples, I said, do you think they're doing those things an accident and everyone said well no okay and but the key is for my bringing it up is i said i'll answer your question on whether president biden is a lawless tyrant or not as michael zarling as a uh, as a christian citizen i'm not going to answer that one as your pastor okay and i think those are what and they, they understood that uh and I think that's, I don't know if that's just splitting hairs or not, as people still realize I'm the pastor, but I think that's the key is I don't want them to, to say, hey, pastors for this guy or that guy, because I'm, I'm not for that guy or this guy or this woman or that woman. You know, it's where they fit best with Christian morals and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's just kind of interesting that, like you said, just a couple of decades ago, we wouldn't be terrified to ask answer that question. Not, not like I was terrified, but we'd be, we'd be answering those questions uh, like the in the mind a lot. You know, we'd be answering those questions from the pulpits with the Bennett Law and so forth. Mm -hmm. Anything else on this before we wrap it up? Nope. Okay. So two things I was thinking of is I want to to thank uh, Mark and Joyce. So they were here 
last Sunday at our Racine campus. So, so the way we do our preaching on Sunday morning is as soon as I'm done preaching at the Racine campus, I take off my gown, I get my car, and I drive the 15 minutes to the Caledonia campus. I get there the last 15 minutes of Bible study, put on my gown, do the service, greet the people very quickly, and then get my car and get back to the Racine campus just in time for the hymn of the day and preach again. And while I was in the sacristy putting my gown on, my associate, Pastor Klusmeyer, came in and said, hey, there's a couple here from, I forget now where, but it's over an hour away. They're here uh, so you can sign their book. So that was pretty cool that we had a family that traveled over an hour on Sunday morning to hear God's word, have me sign their book. And then they went to a brewery. So that was great. That's awesome. And then... Another one is I wanted to share something that Peter shared with me uh, that he said, uh, so this is a message you got. I received my new book today. Hopefully it's a great book. If not, I'll send an email to Pastor Zarling and let him know what I think. <laughs> so this is what I wrote to Peter. How about when he realizes it's a great book, he lets me know. And if he's delusional and thinks it's a crappy book, then he lets you know. <laughs> I haven't heard yet. All right. It's... <laughs> All right. So that, so with anything, if you have anything good to say about the podcast, about the YouTube videos, about the book, let me know. And if you don't like anything you, you hear, let Peter know. All right. Well, Lord's blessings on your week, and we'll see you again, Lord willing, next week.